Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Priced Out podcast. I'm your co-host Chris Worrell and I'm joined by Head of Policy at Priced Out, Anya Martin. Hello. Our special guest today is Dr. Stanimira Nilcheva, Associate Professor of Real Estate and Infrastructure Finance at UCL. Hello. Don't forget to like, share and tweet using Priced Out podcast. So today we're going to be talking mostly about affordable housing and housing affordability. But before we, we kind of go into that, that whole subject area of how we can develop more affordable housing or how we should be developing more affordable housing, it'd be quite good to, to discuss what do we mean when, when we talk about housing affordability? What is, what is affordable housing, the small A, and what is affordable housing with a capital A? Are they different? And is there a, a kind of sense of confusion when people are talking about these various terms? I don't know what you think about that, Stanny. Yeah, I think there is a sense of confusion between the, the terms. Affordable housing is normally what the government defines as affordable housing. So they're very specific definitions of which housing is considered affordable. I think what normally people on the street would consider as affordable housing is much broader than the government defines as affordable housing. I know you have, in your previous podcast, you did speak about how affordability is defined. And I very much agree with, with this concept. Affordability is different from the perspective of the household. So each one can afford different type of housing. However, the government has a very specific definition and that definition has changed over over the years, over the different funding cycles as well. Yeah, quite right. And, and do you think that is, is it helpful for it to change all of the time? And do you think that, because I know a lot of people get quite incensed about, you know, the definition of affordability and, and whether you should be calling certain things, for instance, shared ownership or sub-market home ownership schemes, whether they should be defined as affordable. Do you think that's a an area of debate that we should be focusing on, that the definition needs to be changed by government? Or, or do you think it, it doesn't really matter a great deal because there is no such, there's not one definition of affordability? Because as you say, you know, every household has a, a different price that they can afford and what is affordable for one is, is not for another. I think where the problem starts is when you mix affordable housing with social housing. And what we have seen over the years is that, uh, of course, social housing falls under affordable housing. Affordable housing is a broader definition that incorporates social rent, social housing. But when within this definition, if you have, let's say, five different types of uh, properties or products that qualify as affordable housing, according to the government's understanding, then you can substitute, of course, across those different types of, we call this, tenures, if you yeah. can substitute across the different tenures. And of course, each tenure serves a different cohort, a different income level or different area. So I think it's good to treat those different tenures within the, the somewhat broader affordable housing definition maybe separately, because they uh, fulfill different purposes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think in general, this is just a definition. And the problem arises when you say, okay, we have delivered this year 100,000 affordable homes. But if you drill down and you can see that a very, very small proportion of that is actually social housing. Yeah. So people may confuse the two, the two of them. Yeah, 
Yeah, because a lot of the general public would obviously think of social housing when we're talking affordable, but. Recently, you gave a presentation to Kent County Council, which was published online, and you looked at two questions. Is housing affordable in Kent and what can the council do to alleviate housing unaffordability? And you demonstrated the importance of both affordable and market supply. And in particular, you recommended many of the things that Priced Out advocate, including a focus on releasing land, relaxing supply constraints through offering more planning permissions, increasing density, and also engaging with institutional investors and housing associations to deliver more housing. Now, one bit that was quite interesting was a survey of experts about how they defined affordable housing, and it showed that they were quite mixed in their views. Just under 38% said they thought it should be spending no more than a third of gross income on rent or mortgages. Just under a third said it should refer to affordable in relation to market rents. And the rest was split between answers like shared ownership, bill to rent or help to buy, which I think would surprise some people. Absolutely. And I think another important distinction is between renter, so rented accommodation and owner-occupied accommodation. So accommodation for rent and accommodation for sale. I think, of course, that has changed. Changed over the years, we have seen more of a push towards uh, ownership and away from renting. That's within within the affordable housing segment, yeah. not uh, general housing. In general housing, we see a trend towards the, an increase in the rental market, but yeah. in the affordable housing segment, I think it's probably the opposite. It's quite interesting, yeah. So Chris, so you kind of talked quite a lot about the the history of, of the affordable homes funding and, and how it's kind of evolved over time. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts on, on that directionality. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting since then Grant Shapps brought in the term affordable rent, who affordable housing is for has somewhat become um, a matter of debate. I mean, if we go back to, I think in your report, Double or Quits, Danny, you looked at the history behind government funding or a brief overview of it where it moved to the Housing Association mixed funding model. What your thoughts of the, what brought around that change back then? I mean, this is a, a very good question. So we, uh, I worked on, as you said, on the report for the National Housing Federation case, housing associations and, and shelter. And we did this very nice overview of the different affordable homes programs. So essentially to build new housing that is somewhat cheaper than the market housing, whether the rent is lower or the price is cheaper, that needs to be subsidized by the government. And so the the way the, the UK has subsidized, or England probably, I should say, has subsidized housing is through these affordable housing grants, uh, especially in the last, maybe in the last 10 to 12 years, those affordable homes programs were introduced and they have helped deliver social rent, affordable rent, shared ownership. Uh, so they have helped build various tenures. What we have seen, however, over the years with, uh, with the different programs is that the average subsidy per dwelling has varied quite a bit. So in 2000, between 2006 and 2008, the average subsidy for the construction of a new affordable 
housing unit was around 53,000 pounds. And similar between 2011, that's another affordable homes program. However, since 2011, this subsidy has dropped considerably between 2011 and 2015, it was only uh, 22,000. So it has more than half. Oh, yeah. And between 2015 and 18, it was only 17,000. And in the latest program, 2016 until now, this is 38,000. So you can see that, you know, when you split the money by dwelling, that doesn't go uh, far. Yeah, that's quite a huge. A huge decline, isn't it? So there was a, um, you know, there was a stark change, wasn't there, from back in the 90s where there, it moved from state capital grants, government grants, to a mixed funding model where housing associations would use grant and then borrow privately. And that's obviously fluctuated throughout the time of new labour, right through to Cameron and then Theresa May and more recently Boris Johnson. But is the Affordable Homes Programme the only way we build affordable housing? So another important uh, model is, is a cross-subsidy model. I think for more general audience, the cross-subsidy model essentially means that in order to build sub-market housing or affordable housing, housing associations can borrow on the capital market or go to a lender that can be a bank, that can be a pension fund on fairly good terms. They can also issue their bonds as well. So they would get fairly, fairly cheap credit, the private market, on top of what the government uh, gives them as a grant. And they can build market housing, such as developers do, sell that market housing and cross-subsidize, use the revenues to build social rent or affordable housing tenures. Of course, this model is working, but it's very much dependent on the economic cycle. So if housing associations or local authorities um, cannot sell the units at the expected prices, they may either reduce the prices or they may decide to, to rent the units while the prices go up to their predicted values when they started the development. But this is a very volatile approach to building affordable housing. It's interesting, isn't it? The unsold market sale properties are at the highest level in five years reported by housing associations. I mean, to what extent, Anya, do, do you think that the more recent shared ownership and affordable homes program was a success? I suppose it depends how you define success. It goes without saying that we, we don't build anywhere near the level of affordable homes that we need and the level of funding offered by the Affordable Homes Programme is nowhere near enough to do that. The National Housing Federation, Shelter and the CIH estimated a while ago that we need to be spending £12.8 a year to build about 100,000 or a bit under social rented homes uh, every year. And the current Affordable Homes Programme is less than that amount for a five-year period, so it's lacking in scale to say the least. Sunny, do you have a particular view on this? So we interviewed affordable housing directors of uh, development or the chief executives of 13 fairly large housing associations. And we did ask what they think about the existing program and what they wish to change in the future. So what they like is the flexibility of the current program. They like the fact that it's about 
well, not all of them, but some of them, like the fact that you have a, a number and, uh, and that you should make sure that you deliver this promised number of affordable homes, but how you get to that number, how you split it across various de developments does not matter so much. So it's less micromanagement yeah. from, from the central government and housing associations feel that they have more freedom to, to decide first, decide where to build, what to build, what tenures to build. So they really value high this flexibility of this so-called partnership model. I think that was quite obvious from, from the conversations we had, but of course there are things that can be changed about how this specific program is designed. Mostly extend the length of this program. Yeah. And that's what the report talks about, to extend the length of this program up to 10 years so that when the money is provided, you have 10 years to build and you know that you, you have a guaranteed, guaranteed amount for the next 10 years. And this will enable developing housing associations to maybe be more strategic in what they will be building and maybe optimizing the tenures so that they can provide more social rent, more affordable rent, rather than trying to do things quickly. Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, because if we're looking at a kind of five-year affordable homes program each time, I mean, the, the kind of, I'm sure there was a Litchfield's report out a while ago that said the average time to, to go through planning and, and towards build-out was five years for a larger site anyway. So we're already talking about, on average, if you're doing something large, it can take it can very easily take more than the, the whole length of the programme. And when you're talking about even larger sites, things like new towns and stuff like that, it's, mm. it's quite hard to imagine. How, how, does a, how does a housing association plan for doing something when, when they don't necessarily know what the funding will be like after the next five-year tranche? And the exactly. example that comes to my head is Thamesmead. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you don't start building, uh, you don't start the process immediately you know it, it takes a while to kick off the whole process so you may start halfway through so when you only have two and a half years <laughs> to make uh, use of the money yeah so what we have seen in our report is that the length of uh, the availability of the subsidy is very important in this very early process when you are going and buying the land so even before you're apply for, let's say, planning permission, uh, just choosing what kind of land plot to buy is affected. Uh, you have the grant for. So they must yeah. limit their um, options for deal structures, because obviously if you're going to be buying land unconditionally, you're going to have to go through that planning process. So they're probably mostly having to look at um, plots that already had consent. Absolutely. Um, whether they can build out quicker. I mean, I found, what I found really interesting in the report, Double or Quits, was the summary of the recent affordable homes programs and you know you look back to the the new labor years where i think you touched on earlier stanny where the average grant per dwelling was in the 50,000s, and and that's when we were really building and funding social housing after the sort of cameron government came in the social housing grant was virtually removed and, and we can see the numbers drop quite significantly throughout the period 2011 to 2016 and the level of grant dropped likely because of the focus away from social housing. Absolutely. 
there was a shelter announcement the other day where there were 16 Conservative MPs getting behind it as well. How, how do you see the, the view of social housing? Is it coming back into vogue? Uh, no, I, I, it's hard for me to tell whether there is more interest in social house, social rent. I mean, we can only say that very little new social rent has been built. So the supply of, of social rent has been in steady decline, and overall social rental stock has been declining since since 1980, when the right to buy uh, initiative was introduced. So. I think social rent serves very different types of households than the rest of the affordable products. And I think that has not been sufficiently recognized. Yeah, I think that's quite right. I mean, a few years ago when I started working, I started off in the social housing sector. It was it was not a focus of, of the Cameron government at all, really. I mean, we were quite excited when Theresa May came in and, and kind of started talking a bit more about social housing than they had been previously. And then obviously there was the kind of increase in the grant availability. But it does appear to have gone relatively quiet on that front again. In the, the recent social housing white paper that came out the other day, I don't think specifically mentions the supply of social housing at all. It's, it's all focused on the kind of regulation side and, and tenancy side of things. So it does appear to have dropped out of attention again, even, even though, as, as you said, Chris, there was this uh, small group of MPs the other day backing the development of more social housing. It's very expensive. It's very expensive to build social rent no? because if you want to make it really, really cheap for, for the tenant, if you yeah. have to subsidize the rent heavily, that means that you, know, you need much higher development subsidy uh, yeah. up front anyways because uh, you would not cover your expenditures, your construction costs, your land costs. And that, that is a pure subsidy. That is a pure redistribution uh, of money going specifically for social tenants that the social rental stock will, will be always social rental stock. They are private providers, private invest, uh, institutional investors interested in, in the social, in lending money against new, new development of, of social housing. Yeah. That is more associated to the kind of infrastructure-like type of this, of this product because social rent is in a way like, you know, building um, a hospital or a school or prison. So if the private sector helps in financing the construction of a social uh, rent accommodation, they would have guaranteed payments back so guaranteed cash flows yeah are guaranteed by the government in a way yeah so it's quite appealing from their perspective then yeah since the announcement of the new affordable homes program held it's the biggest investment since 2010 looking at 50 percent home ownership and the other half potentially for rent you know there's been a lot of kickback around i think the j15 have argued that reducing the funding allocated to london will you know cut significantly the jobs created in construction and development as well as others coming out more recently saying could it be used to kickstart modern methods of construction if you were looking at this stanny you, you've mentioned a 10-year program or are there any other additional changes you would recommend for an affordable homes program other than extending the time and funding amount yeah we do actually ask our uh, interviewees of what what they would like to see and they, they quite like the flexibility so they want that flexibility to stay they want to be given the chance to decide uh, what kind of tenures to build so housing associations feel that they know the market they know the local area they know their um, um, 
they know the tenants quite well, so they know what what is required to be built, and and, and I think they want some certainty about um, about the funding, some commitment, and of course higher higher grant rates so that uh, social social rent can can actually be built otherwise uh, it's it's very hard to to build sufficient sufficient social rent accommodation i think what is important however is given that you know probably this cross subsidy model is here to stay at least i haven't had any other perception from from the current government there is very high reliance on uh, on the market to sort out the affordability crisis this is not a bad idea in general when you know the market is booming when developers are developing when banks are lending when we are in a in a bullish market in a way we see construction activity going up. We see there's more interest in, in developing quickly as well. But when the market in, is stagnating as, as it is right now, when the expectations of house prices are falling, then it's very hard to re- rely on this cross-subsidy model because what essentially the grant would, would do is just subsidize a very small part and mostly rely on, on the private uh, market to, to provide the affordable housing, which of course in a downturn, it will be much less than in, in a growing market. So affordable housing supply will follow the same pattern as general housing. So exactly in the times where we mostly need affordable housing, where we mostly need to find places for, for people maybe who have low was their job exactly in the, in the downturn, where the risk of losing a job, the risk of eviction is much higher, we see that there is less new supply of affordable housing. What I find interesting is, in the past, looking at the first Labour government of 1924, under the John Wheatley Act, Labour was quite happy to subsidise the private sector to build and give them grants. Anya, what are your thoughts on government giving money directly to developers? to provide it themselves rather than having to go down a registered provider route. Proof is kind of in the pudding, really, right? If you get more affordable units, if you get more housing units overall for a certain amount of money, if it works, then it works and you should do it. You know, it's a a basic kind of public spending thing that you want to get the most bang for your buck, as it were, out of it. Um, And I'm sure there are plenty of plenty and plenty of models. I know um, a little bit about uh, France, for instance, there's a whole kind of a system of, of uh, savings accounts that people can use. And then that that money that, uh, that people put in, it goes toward house building, affordable house building. Are we like not building so little affordable housing now that we these cross-subsidy systems aren't necessarily fit for purpose? I mean, we looked at the housing associations with their cross-subsidy models recently. And up until now, they've been in large part forward funding or buying off developers hasn't always been the best quality. While there has been an increase in recent times from a low base, we're not still not at the levels that we really need to. I was going to ask Stanny, I remember sitting at one of your symposiums on the case for affordable housing at UCL, and there was a speaker who had from America specialising in multifamily rental housing, and they had something called NOAA, naturally occurring affordable housing. Well, what is NOAA and what's the principle behind that? Yeah, noise is um, just a term to describe uh, maybe existing housing, so existing stock, which is 
probably affordable simply because it's it's cheaper and and the reason why it can be cheaper is in most cases because it's older housing and housing that has not been let's say refurbished so that having actually more of a, an old building in a bad state can is not necessarily a bad thing if that is translated into into lower rent uh, so that that's what they mean by no they they're just looking at the existing stock and spotting what can characterize a NOAA naturally occurring affordable housing building and saying that, okay, I think the studies and also some preliminary research with it shows that it's really mostly to do with age and whether there has been a recent renovation or not. So I think for UK, we have a lot of private landlords and if those private landlords are renting or are letting a, um, a very old Victorian house that they haven't refurbished, they can require um, much lower rent. So that would be classified as, as NOAA. Or if you also, the, the location matters. So if you are in a, probably on the fringes or in not very desirable areas, then you probably will also be looking at a NOAA housing unit. But I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about Section 106 supply. I think this is very, very important. And actually the majority of the new affordable housing completions uh, comes through Section 106 contributions. Those are uh, contributions by uh, private developers that, let's say, a private developer has committed to develop certain amount, certain percentage of units that are mostly shared ownership units or affordable rent unit, they will sell those units to the housing association or the registered provider, and uh, the housing association will own those uh, units, and then they will either rent them or will try to sell the share as a shared ownership and rent the other part. So the, the reliance of, of this Section 106 contributions is, is, uh, is enormous. And now, of course, there is talk of changing this in the planning uh, reform on that will clearly have an effect simply because the new supply has been heavily relying on Section 106 agreements. Stanley, with Section yeah. 106, effectively, it's a type of inclusionary zoning, if you like, where there's a requirement from local policy to have a certain percentage of affordable with any scheme and the tenure mix, whether it's social intermediate or affordable home ownership would make up that difference. Is that not pushing up prices for market sale units to offset the, the lower value that they would be able to sell those Section 106 units to a registered provider? Is it distorting prices? I don't know is the answer. It's a matter of trying to, to test this empirically. I cannot say that is distorting prices, but you know, in, in your evaluation, before you start your development, you have your expected price, not the price you can, you can achieve. And then you would use residual land valuation uh, to figure out what price you should pay for the land. However, because the land market is competitive and probably you're much better positioned to comment on that, I think uh, developers may sacrifice uh, some of this uh, money that is allocated to affordable housing into, let's say, pay a high, power, a pr high price for, for the land. I mean, this is just a, a speculation because I have not done research on that. But I think that, you know, there is 
rather uh, at uh, very early stages when it developers, developers decide how much to pay for the land, that's when maybe affordable housing can be compromised. What do you think, Anya? Empirically, I don't really know what the situation is. But I suppose, uh, I think as Stanley was saying, under a, a land-led model, that kind of subsidy essentially for the affordable units should be factored into the price that they are paying for the land in the first place in a land-led scheme. So in theory, that cost should come from the landowner who's selling it rather than the developer themselves. But I'm sure there is all manner of complexities. Perhaps we can just explore those complexities for a moment then, Anya. One of the most fascinating pieces of empirical evidence I have read on inclusionary zoning has come from the United States. In 2004, James Mitchell produced a paper in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. In it, Mitchell analysed the metro area spanning across two neighbouring states, namely Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Both of them took very different approaches to the issue of the dearth of affordable housing, and both had varying results. For example, in New Jersey, the Mount Laurel Doctrine was enacted that sought to direct the construction for low and moderate income groups, i.e. through subsidy, and mandated inclusionary zoning for minimum levels of affordable housing. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, stipulated what is known as a builder's remedy, which allowed them to override anti-density regulations, but without the mandated affordable housing inclusionary zoning requirement. The evidence shows that significantly more, less expensive housing units, townhouses and apartments, i.e. cheaper housing, were produced in Pennsylvania than in New Jersey. In short, housing outcomes were more diverse as a result of adopting a builder's remedy approach over than that of requiring minimum levels of affordable. What was created was more mixed communities. These findings have also been summarised quite well in Jonathan Levine's book, Zoned Out, and is well covered by Stephen Smith on the blog marketurbanism.com. To add, like, my back of envelope calculations so that if you had a 200,000 gross square foot development with a net internal area of, say, I don't know, 83%, you had to provide 35% of affordable housing, of which those units say were 55% of open market value, you're likely going to be pricing your market sale units anywhere between 18 to 20% higher than if you'd allow the whole scheme to market sale. That is to say, all things being equal and the land value being the equivalent of, say, a town centre retail warehouse unit that has recently gone bust. In effect, you're looking at the difference in a two-bed between Instead of costing £490,000, costing £415,000. So just because of 35% requirement of affordable housing, those other units costing under £75,000 than they otherwise would if the market was just allowed to build at the rate it wanted to. I can see where existing land use is fairly profitable already, then higher um, affordable housing requirements could prevent commercial sites from being redeveloped which would reduce both the supply of homes and of affordable homes. Um, and I can see that where developers are really stretching their viability models to try and buy a site, they might then flex their assumed market price upwards. Um, and sometimes it might be possible. Um, for instance, it's not like one pound over the market price means no one will buy and one pound below means you're going to have a queue of a million people trying to buy it. Um, you know, the market price is a range rather than a fixed point. Uh, developers might choose higher specs or, or then accept that the home uh, would take longer to sell. Um, but I don't think that means that developer contributions to affordable housing or inclusion rezoning, as they call it in the US, is a bad idea. 
because where it does work well and land prices can flex, it means that wealth is taken away from landowners who have not earned their wealth, uh, nor do they need their wealth, and it's transferred in the form of cheaper rents and better housing outcomes to people in real housing need. Um, so I think in that sense, it's a positive thing overall. Stanley, I remember seeing Jane Luke, who done a report on low-income housing tax credits. Now, I'm a big fan of these, having studied under Professor Michael Oxley, who work at the Cambridge Centre for Housing and Planning Research. He said that countries of large affordable housing needs and a desire for new radical solutions should consider a tax credit approach. Is this worth of a serious consideration, in your opinion? I mean, of course, we can adopt models that have worked well in other countries. And from my understanding, that has worked well in, uh, in the US. But I think the U.S. is quite heterogeneous as a country. So, you know, each state would have difficult zoning regulations or planning regulations. In the U.K., we have a very particular planning structure. Uh, so I'm not sure to what extent this will align with, with how things are developed in the, in the U.K. I would very much agree with what Christine said that if there is little intervention in where those developments should happen, then of course there is the, the desire by the developer to, to build in, in, in less um, expensive locations, in locations where land is uh, generally cheaper. And we know uh, in, in the UK or in England, these are not exactly the places that really need the affordable housing we need affordable housing in uh, areas where land prices uh, are very high. Uh, and that is the real problem. The real problem is that, you know, if you want to develop in London, especially, uh, you know, when I spoke with uh, the London, the housing associations that are in the London market, they say it's, it's a completely different market than, than the rest of the country. And that's where you really need the certainty because the process is a long um, the, the, the competition is different for land. So I think if, if we really want to build affordable housing, it's not only the amount of affordable housing, but it's also uh, the right location. So we want affordable housing close to our jobs, maybe not so much nowadays. So we, we will have to see how COVID is impacting our commute. Uh, maybe it lower the problem of, of affordability if people move out in, in the cheaper areas. But I think, um, you know, you, you have to build affordable housing in, in the right places, in the places where you really need it, rather than in, in, in ghettos. Mm, 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 absolutely right, Stanley. All, all very good points. Incredibly well made. So the low-income housing tax credits is a supply-side subsidy that induces equity or cash from the capital markets. And corporations buy tax relief, what they call the credits, with conditions attached to incentivize the private sector, and um, particularly developers, to build affordable housing at rental levels suitable for low-income tenants. You know, there are typically two parties to any affordable housing project in America where they use low-income housing tax credits, you know, the developer and the investor. So if I was going to build a £10 million affordable housing development, and for argument's sake, it's, it was £10 million worth of tax relief was allocated by the state or the local authority we're putting into UK context. I, as a developer, cannot buy um, bricks and mortar or pay for my architects with tax relief. So I would need to syndicate that or allocate it through an investment bank. 
And what would happen is they would sell that tax relief for, say, 70 pence or 90 pence in the pound. And what you get as a developer is upfront cash um, in exchange for that tax relief. Now, what's been interesting is this has stood the test of time since 1986 in America, and they built over 3 million homes. To Christine's point and, and Stanley's, a lot of it has been built in you know, areas where that have high deprivation. But what it does do, it's 100% affordable housing. Now, where I disagreed with Christine was she said that building a total block of affordable housing was not necessarily a good thing because of the mixed communities. But I think you, if you ask many local authorities nowadays, if you were going to come with a 100% affordable scheme for social rent, and we talked about affordable rent, and you know, does it just mean what the government says at the time, or should it mean that it should be for those on the lowest incomes? You know, this is, in my opinion, is a subsidy that doesn't require public sector borrowing, but at the same time provides a, a grant or a, subsid- or a subsidy, if you like, to the private sector to go out and, and develop it. And the reason why having that cash up front helps is because it reduces the investment horizon for those using institutional capital. It also has the mechanisms that can be adjusted for high cost areas or boosted to work in areas even where the replacement costs are higher than the value of the property. I don't know. It's just one of those things that has been bandied around for a long time, but we've never really taken a closer look. I mean, the only time I've actually had someone discussing it, Stanley, was when you were hosting that day. So that, that was what piqued my interest. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it definitely is worth exploring. What is very specific, on the other hand, uh, in, in England is this shared uh, ownership scheme, which is partially you buy a, a proportion uh, of the home, a share of the home, and for the remaining part, you pay a rent to uh, the owner, uh, and the owner is the housing association. And the part that is subsidized uh, or where the affordability comes from is the rent. So the rent is subsidized in a way. And that seems to be the preferred um, affordable housing product for the current government. And I think there is very little research done to really investigate what are the advantages and disadvantages for uh, shared ownership and uh, how can this product be improved. But also it's very little understood because it's a very, very complex product. First, uh, the financing of it is complex. Second, the legal side of it is complex because if you just own a share, how does this enter uh, in your deed? Uh, how do you rec- record it with the land registry? Third, how you, you on top of that have a lease contract, so you're a tenant as well. So how do you split the responsibilities between the two owners? So while it is held to be a solution of affordable housing in the UK, I think um, it definitely needs to be investigated more thoroughly. It's funny you say that. There's a, a recent BBC Panorama on shared ownership, and I'd encourage everyone to tune in and watch that. Anya, do, do Priced Out have a position on shared ownership? Priced Out's attitude to shared ownership is essentially that it's a symptom rather than a cause of the housing crisis. And the only reason that people are locked out of full ownership is because of the inflation of house prices, um, which is predominantly caused by a failure of supply to match demand. So shared ownership is, is kind of a sticking plaster, which and it may really suit some people. It may really help some people to, to get onto the housing ladder, as they say, um, but it doesn't address the fundamental shortage problem. Um, and there are, of course, many issues with the tenure as well. Uh, many of which are the same as the leasehold tenure more broadly, and then some of which are specific to shared ownership. So I do think there's obviously a very strong case for reform of shared ownership, and that will benefit shared owners uh, enormously. But that is not going to solve the fundamental house price problem that we have in this country more broadly.
And Stanley, in, in, in America, they've also make use of tax incremental finance. I know it's been mooted sometimes in the UK, particularly around the Bakerloo extension line. You know, this is seen as catnip, I've heard it described, for developers. Tax incremental finance, the um, subsidy they're paying for infrastructure funding up front, that then can be paid down by business rates. I think the um, paper that was presented at the symposium seems to suggest that you know it was it was very well received by developers to go out and and fund infrastructure costs in this way however it, what it did it, it resulted in increasing construction costs some argued that it could be a result of more for, affordable housing being produced competing for a limited supply of land in the area while others said well you know is this a function of inefficiencies in the market by pumping up demand with a with a subsidy i don't know to what extent it would be a good idea to bring over here. I mean, if there are ways in which more complex schemes, you know, can be unlocked through, you know, business rates funding that infrastructure, is that is that not going to help unlock more sites? If the problem is financing, probably yes. If uh, at the moment I think there is a lot of money lying around, we call this drug powder, especially uh, private equity funds, funds that are willing to take higher risk uh, in, let's say, greenfield developments. Uh, when we talk about infrastructure specifically, uh, we definitely see there is a lot of money out there by institutional investors that is willing to get invested. Uh, so it's not so much a problem of financing, I think, uh, as is the problem of investability. So do we have the right product that the investors are looking for? And the majority of the investors, when they're looking to commit to this kind of um, development, are looking for stable cash flows over the long term and, and, and some sort of predictability, maybe predictability in terms of the planning process and also very much predictability in terms of the political risk, so regulatory risk, political risk, if, if that's that's considered high or if, if there is some uncertainty around uh, what's going to happen in the next few years, I think that is more of a problem rather than, than securing financing. And right now, as we all know, interest rates are super low. So I think, yeah, you, you, we can go to the private market to finance development. But I think the other question is, how long do we want to be on, on market cycles? And do we want to think of counter-cyclical delivery? Because development is uh, very, very cyclical and very risky at the same time. So I think, you know, relying heavily on, on the private sector has its uh, problems. Interesting. Yeah. And have you read anything about environmental social governments, ESG investing in yeah. the financing of social and affordable housing? Have you got any thoughts yeah. on that? Definitely, absolutely. I mean, if, you know, especially institutional investors, pension funds uh, can uh, fulfill their ESG requirements by investing in, in, in social housing, by building social housing. You know, I think we all contribute. We are all essentially putting our money into those pension funds. And we, I think, would understand if, let's say, maybe... You know, if, if we take a slightly lower return, but we know that this investment is, is, is an ESG investment. So I think it's a matter first of communication. And second, it's very hard to, of course, quantify 
what will be um, the welfare benefit of you know delivering social housing but i think even if your investors if if the people who contribute to the fund understand the the uh, societal benefits of such investment i think a, a slightly lower risk can can be justified so i think it's just a matter of you know making this very very clear and communication yeah okay well we are unfortunately coming up to probably the end of this episode thank you so much for, for joining us here Stanley. It's, it's been really really good thank really you. interesting and, and thank you to everyone who has listened in as well it's been really good fun and it's, it's been great to have so much positive feedback from from so many people around the sector this episode actually winds up our four-part series but do watch this space because we'll be looking at another series in uh, potentially spring next year delighted to take any feedback from listeners about topics that you'd like to see discussed so thank you again Stanny. Goodbye, everyone, and let's get building homes. If 2020 has taught us one thing, it's that we depend on each other during tough times. For someone who's homeless and alone this year, Christmas could be truly awful. Whether you're struggling to get by outside in the cold, sleeping on someone's sofa, or holed up in a lonely B&D, there's often no one to talk to and nothing to look forward to. Why are we encouraging people to buy a crisis gift this Christmas? using the Crisis Christmas Gift donation. Someone who's homeless can get give access to friendship and support, essential food, place to stay over Christmas and all year round support. So donate now by going to crisis.org.uk.